the prophet Elijah has sprung onto the national stage like an absolute rock star. His show-stopping performance atop Mount Carmel saw him evoke what he told the huge crowd of onlookers was the power of God. The prophets of the pagan gods Baal and Asherah had failed emphatically to rouse their own deities, while Elijah's was seen to ignite wood and stones that had been drenched in water. After the showdown, though, Elijah must face the consequences of what has just happened. Israel's most pagan king to date, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel have been humiliated. And despite God winning a huge number of new followers on the mountain, Elijah's is a lone voice of opposition. He needs to run, and fast. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 82, The Dainty and the Damned. driving your car, emptying the dishwasher, doing a spot of gardening, having a jog. Who knows where you're listening? I'm just thankful that you are listening. You'll be happy to know this is as easy as Bible podcasts get. A leisurely joyride through the entire book. How leisurely? Well, we're 82 weeks in and we've only just entered the Bible's 11th book. That's out of a total of 66, so yes, we're definitely in the slow lane. Warning, there will be a lack of reverence of the sacred text, not because I don't take it seriously, but because I'm simply looking at the story. So I won't be stopping to advise anyone how to live their lives. I also don't assume that you believe the Bible. That's why I'm careful not to say, God tells Elijah. I'm more likely to say, according to the first book of Kings, God tells Elijah, or Elijah believes he can hear God telling him to, It's a small point, but I think it's an important one, and it allows you to make up your own mind as to whether you think the story is true. Okay, let's get back to the action on Mount Carmel. Over to you, Chaz. Thanks, Chaz. Now that he has a brace of new converts, Elijah sends them on their first mission. He orders them to capture and kill the pagan prophets who failed so catastrophically to rouse their gods earlier on in the day. The men are captured and brought into a nearby ravine where they are slaughtered. Elijah tells King Ahab to eat and drink as he can hear the sound of heavy rain. This will mark the end of the drought which, according to the first book of Kings, God told Elijah would rage until the prophet demonstrated to Israel that God is in control of the nation. The book doesn't record what Ahab's response is to the slaughter of the pagan prophets and it could be that he is being cowed by the power of Elijah's God and he runs off to eat. Meanwhile, Elijah climbs back up Mount Carmel where he squats with his head between his knees. He tells his servant to look out to see for signs of rain. There is none, but the prophet sends his man back six further times until a cloud as small as a man's hand is spotted in the sky. Now the prophet sends his servant to warn Ahab to hitch up his chariot and head home before he gets bogged in the mud that will accompany the downpour. The skies then open and Ahab makes for Jezreel, site of one of his royal palaces. 
Elijah is able to somehow outrun the royal chariot and arrives in the city before the king, an achievement which the writer attributes to a divine miracle. Furious that her favourite prophets have died in a bloodbath, Ahab's queen Jezebel vows to hunt Elijah down. Although she's seen as the villain in this story, it is Ahab who has fallen over himself to accommodate and indulge her worship of Canaanite gods. As a princess from Sidon, Jezebel sits outside the Jewish world and isn't rebelling against God. As king of Israel, Ahab is the custodian of God worship and keeping the faith is very much part of his job description. Jezebel sends an ominous message to Elijah. If she doesn't slaughter him like he has just killed all of her own prophets, she expects to be treated appallingly by her gods. In an act of self-preservation, Elijah flees to a village in Judah where he leaves his servant before travelling another day further into the wilderness. Here he lies down under a broom bush, one of the few shade-giving plants in the Negev desert. Mentally and physically exhausted, he tells God that he has had enough and that he should kill him. God has other plans and readers are told that the prophet is woken from his sleep by an angel who has baked him some bread on a fire and brought him water in a jar. Elijah eats and drinks, then goes back to sleep. According to the story, the angel wakes him a second time and advises him to eat and drink a little more. Strengthened by the food, Elijah walks for 40 days and nights to the same holy mountain where God once spoke to Moses. Here he holds up in a cave. Which one is uncertain? There don't appear to be any caves on Mount Sinai, but a small plateau two-thirds of the way to the summit is still known as Elijah's Hollow. At some point during the night, the prophet hears what he believes to be the voice of God. God appears to be curious as to why Elijah is hiding in a cave on a mountain such a long way from his home, and the prophet explains the woeful spiritual state of the nation of Israel. God has been rejected, he tells him. The altars have been torn down. Elijah is the only prophet left who hasn't been killed, and now his own life is in danger. The first book of Kings describes how God then tells Elijah to step outside the cave as he is about to make himself known. Firstly, a powerful wind shatters the nearby mountains. This is followed by an earthquake and then a fire, but the prophet does not detect God's presence in any of these. Finally, when he hears a whisper, Elijah steps outside, convinced that this is God speaking. Again, God asks what he is doing on the mountain, and again, Elijah repeats his news about the moral decline of Israel. God then gives his prophet a to-do list. He is to anoint a pagan Canaanite named Hazael to rule Israel's neighbouring enemy, Aram. He is to anoint the military commander Jehu as the next king of Israel, and he is to anoint the prophet Elisha as his own successor. The plan is that whoever Hazael doesn't destroy, Jehu will wipe out, and whoever Jehu misses, Elisha will finish off. All God asks for is that the 7,000 Israelites who have remained loyal to him should be spared, a minuscule number given the millions who live in the country. 
No doubt emboldened and reassured by his conversation with the Almighty, Elijah hurries off to find Elisha and get the wheels of God's plan in motion. It might be item number three on God's agenda, but Elijah's first act after returning to Israel from Judah is to officially appoint his successor. A man named Elisha is ploughing a field when Elijah finds him. The plough he will have been using is a simple forked stick that cuts a narrow channel in which cereal can be planted. When Elijah arrives, Elisha is leading 12 teams, each with two oxen between them, putting him in charge of 24 animals in total. Whether he is expecting a visitor or if the two men even know each other, readers are not told, but Elijah immediately throws his cloak over his soon-to-be successor, suggesting a transference of power between them. Knowing that working for Elijah is probably not going to be a stay-at-home job, Elisha asks for permission to say goodbye to his parents, which Elijah grants. Elisha then slaughters all 24 oxen, cooks the meat on a fire made from burning his plough, and gives the food to friends and family who are with him. The fact that Elisha has 12 teams of oxen at his disposal suggests that he comes from a wealthy family which owns plenty of land, yet it appears that he is prepared to throw away all trappings of wealth if it means doing what God wants. His preparations ready, Elisha follows Elijah and willingly transitions from affluent heir to the servant of an itinerant prophet. In a terrifying challenge to Ahab's kingdom, a coalition of 33 kings and their combined firepower, led by the king of Aram, launches an attack on the citadel of Samaria. The force amassed by Ben-Hadad II is the largest coalition army in the Old Testament, and Aram's king announces that all Ahab's silver and gold, plus the pick of his wives and children, will be his. Ahab's response is a pragmatic one. It's highly unlikely that Israel's army will be able to repel the attack, and he effectively tells Ben-Hadad's messengers that the kings can help themselves. The men return to Ahab with a message that soldiers will enter the city the next day and remove everything of value that they can lay hands on. Ahab finds this a little unfair, as he agreed to Ben-Hadad's demands the first time, so there was no need for things to escalate. Ahab's advisers suggest that he ignore Aram's new demands, so he tells the messengers that their king can still come in and take silver, gold, wives and children, as originally agreed. Ben-Hadad clearly wants a fight and swears to pulverise Samaria to the point where there will not be enough dust left for each of his men to grab a handful. Feeling confident, Ahab warns the king of Aram that he better not be all mouth and no trousers, telling him not to boast like a man taking off his armour after a battle while he is still putting it on. The message is delivered to Ben-Hadad and his royal cohorts while they are in their war tent and their blood up the coalition prepares to annihilate Israel's capital city. According to the book, God wants to use this experience to show Ahab that he should finally start following him. A prophet visits the king and tells him that God will help him defeat the vast army at his gates. The odds seem impossible, and so Ahab is all ears. He is told that the men who will bring the battle home will be junior officers. 
The suggestion is that these are somewhat effete nobles who will never have seen combat, making it clear that the victory is God's work, not the army's. Ahab also receives the surprising news that he, not Ben-Hadad, will start the battle. With nothing to lose and demonstrating a leap of faith for the first time in his reign, Ahab sets out from the city with a meagre fighting force of just 7,000 men. It's the middle of the day and, not fearing any kind of trouble from Samaria at this time, Ben-Hadad and his warriors are still living it up in their tent. While the Arameans and their allies party, the dainty Israelite army begins its unlikely advance with the young nobles at its head. Scouts from Ben-Hadad's army see the junior outriders and report back to the kings. The order is to take them alive regardless of whether they come in peace or war. The young men prove surprisingly able fighters and dispose of their opponents so effectively that the entire Aramean coalition turns on its heels and runs. Ben-Hadad and some of his officers flee on horseback while Ahab's troops inflict heavy casualties on Aram's army. They may have won the battle, but they haven't yet won the war, and the prophet warns Ahab that Aram may attack again in the spring. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad has been advised that the hills gave Israel an advantage. Israel's gods are gods of the hills, he is told, suggesting that even Israel's neighbours have forgotten about the existence of capital G God. The king is advised that he is more likely to win if the battle is fought on the plains. He's also told to repopulate his army horse for horse and chariot for chariot and to take command away from his kings, replacing them with trained army officers instead. Following the advice to the letter, Ben-Hadad and his compatriots ride out once again to take on Israel. The two sides face each other on the level country just east of the Sea of Galilee. Aram spread across the plain, while the Bible describes Israel's camp as like two flocks of goats. The prophet shares with Ahab the Aramean belief that Israel only has divine protection in the hill country and that the element of surprise will swing the battle Israel's way. This is God showing Ahab that he is in control and is a sign for the king, the holy man tells him. The prophet is not wrong about victory. After a seven-day standoff, the two sides engage and Israel's tiny army inflicts 100,000 casualties on the coalition forces in a single day. The rest of Ben-Hadad's troops escape to the nearby city of Aphek, where a wall collapses, killing another 27,000 of them. It seems improbable that a victory like this one can turn into defeat for Israel, but somehow Ahab manages it. While Ben-Hadad is cowering in an inner room in the city, he hears that the Israelites are famously merciful and decides that his best option is to make peace with Ahab. Wearing sackcloth and ropes, his envoys approach Ahab with the news that Ben-Hadad is now his servant and is begging for his life. Captive soldiers were dragged by ropes around their necks, so the Arameans draping rope around their heads and shoulders would have been seen by Ahab as an act of submission. Ahab delights in being in a position to be magnanimous. He claims that Ben-Hadad is like a brother to him, which the Aramean officials take to be a good sign. 
Ahab even invites the humiliated king to sit alongside him in his chariot. Ben-Hadad promises to return the cities which his father annexed from Ahab's father Omri, cities which Ahab now has every right to simply take back. Ahab's response to this offer that isn't an offer appears to be a casual whatever, and he lets Ben-Hadad go in exchange for the cities and some commercial areas of Damascus. Despite Jezebel's purges, there still appears to be a community of godly prophets in Samaria, and one of the men from this group decides to tell Ahab what will now happen as a result of his actions. He asks a companion to strike him with his weapon, but the man refuses. This refusal is seen by the first prophet as an act of disobedience against God. For this, the man will be mauled by a lion, he is told, a prophecy which comes true almost immediately. Seeing what has just happened, the next man who is asked to hit the prophet doesn't hold back and hits him so hard that he wounds him. The holy man then disguises himself so that he no longer resembles a prophet and waits by the road for the king to pass. There is no symbolism between a prophet asking to be wounded and Ahab's treatment of Ben-Hadad. The prophet needs to convince Ahab that he has just seen action on the battlefield. Having a recent wound makes his story more credible and, looking like a wounded soldier, might make it easier to gain access to the king. Seeing Ahab, the man spins a tale that he was in the thick of battle when he was told to guard a man with his life, but he became distracted and the man got away. Ahab tells him that he should be punished, at which point the prophet removes his disguise. Ahab recognises him and the man tells him that the king let a man live who God wanted dead. Now he must die instead of Ben-Hadad and his people must die instead of Aram's. Angry at how the prophet has read his actions and judged him, Ahab returns to Samaria, feeling far less triumphant than he was a few hours earlier. Ahab is such a colourful character that the Book of Kings dwells on him longer than any other king. His next adventure involves, of all things, a vegetable garden. It's fair to say that under Ahab and Jezebel, morality in Israel is at a low ebb. This is demonstrated perfectly when Ahab decides that he would like a vineyard which doesn't belong to him. The vineyard in question is owned by a man called Naboth and is ideally situated next to Ahab's palace in Jezreel. The king wants the land to plant a vegetable plot and offers to buy Naboth a different patch of land in exchange or simply pay him for it. Naboth refuses on principle. The land has been in his family for generations and Ahab retires to his bed in a sulk, refusing even to eat. It is here that Jezebel finds him and mocks his lack of kingly leadership. Her husband is to get up and cheer up, she says. The vineyard will be theirs. What happens next is one of the most shocking acts of sociopathy in the Bible and marks Jezebel as one of the most evil characters in a book that also contains Herod and Judas. It's a low point for Israel's monarchy, but Ahab is not the last evil king to rule Israel or Judah, nor is Jezebel the last evil queen. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. 
cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you like what you're hearing, please do tell your family and friends and leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, if you pop over to Amazon, you can download Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis to Deuteronomy. Thanks for listening and see you next time.